you brought your Bibles this morning, please open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you're doing that, I'd like to say how pleased I am to have my brother Rudy with me. Amen. Very good friend, brother in the Lord. It's so, so good to have him with us this morning. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, if you recall back before the holidays, and I know some people get really upset about that word holiday, like we're not supposed to use it. It's holy days, right? They are the holy days. So before the holidays, good. Before the holidays, we were looking at 1 Corinthians, and we spent quite a bit of time in 1 Corinthians, and I said that in the new year we would be looking at 2 Corinthians, and so that's, that's where we're at. So 2 Corinthians, it's a very different letter than, than 1 Corinthians. So if, given the amount of time that we spent in 1 Corinthians, you were, you were looking for maybe a change a little bit, well, you're going to get it, because 2 Corinthians is decidedly, decidedly different than 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, if you recall, we're talking about a church that had lots of problems. Like, if you name a problem, they had it, right? That's not the case in 2 Corinthians. I mean, the problems may still have been there, but that's not what the letter addresses. There are issues, yes, but they're not the kind of problematic issues we saw in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, there was a lot of mystery we had to resolve. We had all these answers and didn't have the questions. We had all these solutions and didn't have the problems. Well, that doesn't happen as much in 2 Corinthians, if for no other reason than we have 1 Corinthians to help us out. But we're not going to have to deal with that. Uh, 1 Corinthians has a very, at times, confrontational tone. It's Paul really getting in their faces. That's not going to happen in 2 Corinthians. We're not going to see much of that at all. In fact, a lot of um, 2 Corinthians, a lot of it is about reconciliation. Chapter 5, Paul will talk about the ministry of reconciliation and what an incredible topic that is. We can look forward to that in chapter 5. Um, but perhaps most importantly, 1 Corinthians focuses on the Corinthians and the problems they have. Um, 2 Corinthians focuses more on Paul and Paul talking about his experiences, his feelings, his issues, his fears, the things that he had to deal with. It's, it's a very, very personal letter. In fact, I think Paul probably talks more about himself and what he's gone through and what he's experiencing in this letter uh, than anywhere else in anything that he writes, which is really good for us because it helps us understand him. And as we understand him and what he dealt with and how he went through things um, and how the Lord was there for him, um, it helps us. And so I think we can look forward to um, a rewarding time as we go through. 2 Corinthians. So let's go ahead and look to the text, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in the first verse, and again I'm reading from the New American Standard. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the church of God which is in Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, which is just southern Greece, right? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. 
or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers in our sufferings, so also you are sharers in our comfort. Father, we do thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your presence, Lord. Um, Lord, we, we are confident that you're working, Father, not just in our lives individually, but in our corporate life here, the lives of each family represented here, Father, because we are such a needy people. Your word is so clear on that regard. We have so much to be grateful for. And so at this time, we thank you for your word, the power of your spirit, which illuminates your word, opens our minds and hearts to it. We ask you to speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The message of 2 Corinthians is really, really clear. It's not, it's again, not much of a mystery. Verse 5, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Um, probably not a big mystery why we don't talk about this book more. And, and I do really suggest, as I, as I have before, when we're going through a book like this, that you take the time uh, first to read through the whole book, just read straight through it. It takes about 20 minutes or so. And then as we're going through the chapters each week, read the chapter ahead. I think you'll get a lot more out of it. And um, what you're going to notice is one thing, the, the book talks a lot about suffering and difficulties and challenges. You'll probably also notice a lot of verses that you recognize. Because there's a lot of circumstances in life when we you know, say, well, you know, the Bible says this about that, and we kind of pull a verse out. A lot of those come from 2 Corinthians. In fact, most of our, of our use, if I can use that word, and I, and I confess this would include me, um, of 2 Corinthians is that kind of selective you know, verse shopping, right? Because there's lots of really good things in it, right? But to stop and talk about the whole book, that, that's not something that we do a whole lot of. Um, if you were to go into um, the average pastor's library, those that still have books, right? Don't do everything online. You would probably notice like three, four, five books on 1 Corinthians, and like one on 2 Corinthians. And, and the books on 1 Corinthians would be like this, really big. And the book on 2 Corinthians is like this. We just don't talk about it that much. Um, and again, I, I would include myself in that. And I think there's a couple of reasons that we don't do that. Well, basically one reason, the theme is kind of rough, right? It, it's suffering. It's talked about a lot. And, um, and the positive side of that, who wants to talk about that, right? It just is not as appealing. Um, I think especially in our Western experience of Christianity, our Western faith, there's a couple of themes, and they're really central to this letter, that we just don't do well with, that we just don't resonate with us. Um, you know, suffering. You know, by and large, in our Western mindset, and this isn't just the church, this is the Western world in general, if we think we're going to suffer or might suffer, we kind of freak out, right? Isn't it interesting, isn't it interesting that we use the word wrong both to describe like a moral issue and to describe any problem? Now we know we use them differently when you walk up to somebody and they have a flat tire and you say, what's wrong? We're not using it in the same way as when we say to one of our children, you did wrong. And yet it's, I think, significant that we do use the same word. We kind of lump problems with like, you know, moral or ethical issues because they just shouldn't be there. 
We just, we don't do well. We don't do well. I mean, look how we've reacted the last 24 months to a problem. A lot of people, I think, reactions might have been a little bit different than they would have been other places. We just have a sense, whatever the problem is, whether it's physical or monetary, relational, it's just like, this isn't supposed to happen. Our Western, and that's understandable because as a culture, as a nation, we are problem solvers. Um, the, the, our, our nation, our culture, we have accomplished so much in such a short period of time. We just aren't really okay with things not being okay. It just doesn't, doesn't resonate um, with us at all. The question we all so often find ourselves asking, why is God letting this happen? Again, like there's something wrong with things being wrong, right? Shouldn't, shouldn't be this way. Um, just the normal. Uh, a good example of how different that is, sometimes it's hard to see how we're different than other cultures until you look at the other culture. Um, when you go into a lot of churches in like Eastern Europe, in the, in the Orthodox world, and, and I would imagine it's the same as, as, as in the Roman Catholic world, I, I just can't speak to that, that use icons a lot or pictorial representations, that's first of all different from us because so many of us read and so much of the Eastern Church, their traditions were introduced when people didn't read, or couldn't, not as many could read, so they used pictures to do everything. And if you've ever had the opportunity of walking into an Eastern Church, an Orthodox Church, you see the walls are just covered with icons, pictures, and that's weird to us, but again, that's because we can read. Well, they use those to teach people. Like on one wall, you'll see all the icons of the Old Testament saints, and you can go from story to story to story in the Old Testament and use the icons as a teaching tool. Helps them to remember. And then you go to the other wall, and there's like all these icons from the, the, the New Testament, all the saints and all the stories, and you can tell those great stories, and they had those pictures to remember. And then across the front, you've got the four evangelists, you have Jesus and Mary, and then you have the major you know, teachers of the early church, and you can use those, that's all teaching tools, right? Well, frequently, that wall, or some cases, other walls on the, in the church, will have all the icons of the martyrs, right? And you go, okay, well, those are like the great martyrs of the church. Usually, no. Those are the great martyrs of this church. And they can tell you about the people who suffered and died, and the pictures can be horrible. Um, you wonder, why are those horrible pictures in church? That's because that's how this church came to be. That happened to those people. So there are other expressions of the faith. There are other communities of faith that are very outward in their, if I can use the word embrace, their recognition that suffering is normative. And we're just not there. That, that's not us. We don't do well with, with, with that idea. Um, there's just a closer connection to the historic suffering of the church and, and other expressions of the faith. And then the, we don't do well with suffering. We also don't do well with patience. Patience is one. We, how many will admit to being impatient? You didn't have to raise your hand, but I noticed it was so easy. Uh, um, uh, we don't handle. We can handle a problem as long as it can be resolved in 30 minutes, right? If it's a serious problem, we give it 90. Um, here's the here's the harder question: Is impatience a sin? Now, I don't know the answer to that question. If you just if you want, if you got like 15 minutes of time to kill, Google that. Is impatience a sin? And you will see the widest variety of answers and explanations. It's it's kind of riotous. 
We know, however, when impatience, which is an, and isn't it funny? We talk about when we when we say I'm an impatient person, we list that almost like it's a physical trait, like you know I'm so tall, I have this color eyes, and yeah, I'm impatient, like I got no responsibility for it. Okay, whether or not impatience is a sin, being impatient with people and allowing that tendency to manifest itself in our relationships usually leads us there. Yeah, usually it, it will get us to a place where, where it becomes a sin. So um, it's, it's patience is, and it's not so much whether just simply being impatient is a sin. The other side of the question is how absolutely vital patience is. You know, we can debate whether or not impatience is a sin. There's no debate as to how vital patience is. Just a, just a handful, I mean, it's all over the New Testament. Ephesians 4, the first three verses, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, Paul writes, and when you're a prisoner, generally patience is, is, is a factor, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Right? Humility, gentleness with patience, critical to walking in the manner of a believer. Hebrews 6, 11, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end and not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Boy, there's a lot in that one. The, 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 the almost equation between faith, I mean, no one would question the importance of faith, right? But faith and patience... Right? And, and the alternative to faith and patience being sluggishness? In other words, am I to being, just being too lazy to get past my impatience? That's kind of the inference there. And then just one more, James 4.3, let patience have its perfect result so that you may be perfectly complete, lacking nothing. And that just means mature. You want to be mature in the faith? You're going to have to be patient. It's an absolute necessity. So patience is really critical. And... Um, even though it's not necessarily something we feel naturally inclined to, there's lots of things we're not naturally inclined to, we have to do anyway. So the letter's a challenge, right? 2 Corinthians is a challenge. And what I want to do this morning, just to get started, is to walk through this introduction and kind of lay some foundation going forward. So verse 1, to get to the text. Paul says, An apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints, and all those who are throughout Achaia. Again, that's just southern Greece. Standard greeting. Standard Pauline hello. The only real difference would be he adds Timothy, which I think is significant because if you recall back in 1 Corinthians, we mentioned that one of the things Paul did to help address the problems in Corinth was to send Timothy there. And if you recall, the reception he got wasn't very good. We talked about that. Timothy had a rough time when he got to Corinth. Well, Paul's inclusion of him in the greeting here is Paul's way of saying, you know what, we're all good. You guys were rough on Timothy when, when he was there, but we worked through it and we're good. It's an affirmation that relationship is restored, even in kind of a, kind of a subtle way. But that's important. right? He also says in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Very normative, very typical. And I think there's even something in that for us. You know, when there's been a relationship which is strained, and there is no doubt from 1 Corinthians, Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church was strained. That's, to, 
you know, understate the situation. Where there's been a really strained relationship, sometimes it helps just to get on like normative speaking terms. If you're having a hard time, you know, communicating with somebody, just start with something simple, like a normal greeting. Okay? It's amazing when you've got, there's somebody that you've got a really strained relationship with and you pass them in town and you just say, hello, how are you doing? Rather than ignoring them completely, how far that can go. And that's Paul kind of doing that. He's, he's working at restoring what has, again, been a very, very strained relationships and sometimes just normal pleasantries are good for that. Verse 3 and 4 is when he really gets to it, though. We need to take these together. It's one sentence. Really the heart of the matter. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Two words pretty obviously stand out, right? Comfort and affliction. They're like, I think he says comfort five times in that passage, right? So let's talk about these two words just really quickly. First of all, the word comfort. Father of mercies, God of all comfort. The word occurs in a variety of forms in this, in this sentence. It's, it's a noun, it's a verb. I think it's even an adjective too. It's used in various forms. And the word um, all relates back to the idea of, of the verb palakaleo, which means to call one alongside. And, and, if you've, and if you've read your Bible, you know your Bible, you know that's also related to that word that Jesus uses in John to describe the Holy Spirit. So we want to be aware of that association. You don't want to press it too hard because you've got two different authors that can use the word differently. But the whole idea of one who is called alongside to bring comfort. And here's the point. Here's the point. We all experience trials, difficulties. It's a normative part of life. Jesus promised us, John 16, 33, in this world you will have tribulations. And when we're in that situation, you know, our first inclination is to ask, you know, God, please send me the solution, right? Whatever it is, physical, economic, relational. We're always looking for the solution, for the problem to be solved. The New Testament pattern is the one prayer that you know will be answered was, God, please send me comfort in this situation. Not always delivered from the trial, from the difficulty, but send me comfort in this. We just need somebody to step up and stand alongside of us in our difficulties. Here's the beautiful part. Sometimes, going back to the way Jesus described the Holy Spirit in John, he is the comforter, the one called alongside. Sometimes God just like, boom, shows up. And it's just a you and Jesus moment or a me and Jesus moment. And that's incredible, isn't it? And, and, I, and I do hope that you've all had that kind of experience where you have been in a trial, you've been in a difficulty, and you cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed up, and it was just you and Him, and that was beautiful. But is that the norm? I think more often than not in Scripture, we find out that when, we, when someone's in a situation like that, I certainly can attest to it in my own life, when there's been a problem, when there's been a trial, God doesn't necessarily show up by Himself. He sends somebody. 
He sends somebody. And that person can come alongside and can be the comfort, can be the assurance, just can be the help that we need really in that. And that's going to be a big part of this letter. Again, we're laying groundwork for the letter here. As members of the body of Christ, this is a mind blower when you think about it. I mean, our first inclination is to think, isn't it great when I have a problem and God just like personally shows up? Boom. It comes out of nowhere. It's just a God thing. And that's great. It is. But isn't it even more incredible when we have a problem or somebody has a problem and the answer can come through a good old-fashioned human being like one of us made of the same stuff we're made of, made of the same clay we're made of, having the same issues we have when a person can show up and that person can be an agent of the very comfort God himself is sending to be used by God to comfort a brother or a sister, right? So often, um, I'm asked when a, a person's in a difficult place or a brother or sister, you know, and they want to help. I got a phone call just this week, just this week when, when somebody, um, a, a sister in the Lord, had a situation in her family and she desperately wanted to be able to respond to a very real family emotional need. And she said, I don't know what to do. And I was able to say, be there. Just be there. It's called the ministry of presence, if you study ministry. And all that means is just be there. Because when we are there as vessels, humans indwelt by the Spirit of God, then the Spirit of God is there. And what a marvelous privilege that is. Credible, credible privilege. Extraordinary to think that God would do that through us. He cares for His people. Sometimes God does it directly by ministering by His Spirit to our heart, but more often than not, I have found He uses His people to minister the comfort. He is the God of all comfort. That's what Paul says. But He ministers through us. We're going to find that's a big part in the letter. The other word that this passage uses is affliction, and that's the one we really don't like. And that's the word thlipsis. Um, and it means to be pressed. Right? One of, the, one of the word pictures of the New Testament for difficulties and trials is of the olive press. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen an olive press, an old olive press. They're really, really impressive. Uh, no play on words is intended there. Right? There's, there's one, uh, I'll never forget, there's one in, the, in a gift shop that sits just outside the old city of Corinth. And it's this big barrel. It's like this. And there's a big disc. And there's a wooden hand-carved wooden screw. It's actually it's amazing craftsmanship. There's this hand-carved wooden screw about this big around. And these long, long wooden handles. And they would just fill that wooden like barrel-like thing with the olives. And then they would turn that handle. And you can only imagine the amount of pressure that is exerted as they press the oil from the olives. And that's a pretty good visual of what we go through in life, isn't it? just feel like you're being crushed by the weight that life can bring. And that's what Paul's talking about here. It means any kind of difficulty or trial. Uh, it's a common enough expression. Uh, they, it was used in secular Greek all the time. In the New Testament, though, it has a unique meaning. Because, you know, we sometimes think because we're Christians, we're followers of Christ, we should be exempt from that. Sorry pattern of the New Testament is not only are we exposed to all of the pressures the world is exposed, we get additional pressure. 
Because in fact, we are servants of Christ. And we have verses like Colossians 1.24 where Paul talks about filling up what is left behind in the sufferings of Christ. And that's kind of a headbender of, of, of a scripture. But it tells us that although Christ's sufferings on the cross, right, his sufferings when he, was, when he was beaten, when he was scorned, all those, those were absolutely sufficient for our salvation. By his stripes we are healed, right? At the same moment, there is suffering left for the followers of Christ. And Paul describes that very clearly as an essential part of the ministry of Christ. Now, I can't figure that out. I can't give you an explanation for that. But the Scripture makes it absolutely clear. Paul, uh, Peter writes this in 1 Peter 12. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. That, that, that's a, that's a, a source of affliction that the unbeliever isn't touched by. That's a source of sorrow or pain or challenge or trial that doesn't affect the unbeliever at all. They're totally exempt from that. So it is our privileged status as the people of the Lord to share in the sufferings of Christ. Paul goes on to say, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. For if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It was, it's common. It was common to the early followers of Christ to suffer in a very real sense in this way, and they were wise enough to see it as nothing more than an indication of, the, of, of their nearness to Christ. So the Christian walk, as Scripture lays out pretty clearly, is not, one that, is not something that somehow exempts us from trials, but just guarantees it. I mean, life in the world guarantees it. Being a follower of Christ just adds another cause. So what's the advantage of being a Christian then? I mean, if, if life in, in the world's hard enough, we get enough disappointments as it is, and being a follower of Christ just means there's whole other, you know, whole other supply of, of affliction that's come in my direction. What's the advantage of being a follower of Christ? Well, the advantage is being found not in the absence of trial, but in the presence of comfort. And the assurance and the guarantee of comfort. Again, verse 3 and 4 this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. The Father of all mercies and comfort. Notice the parallel between mercy and comfort. We love to receive mercy, don't we? Yep. Because we all are sinners, and we know that we don't stand a rat's chance without His mercy. So we line up for the mercies of God, right? But do we line up for the comfort? I'd rather not have to stand in that line, please. But just as assuredly that I need to stand in the line that seeks the mercies of God, I need to be prepared to stand in the line that seeks the comfort of God. The two go hand in hand, right? He is the Father of all mercies and comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Is that one you have on your refrigerator door? That He will comfort us in all our afflictions. You might want to put it 
on your refrigerator door because it's one we need to remember. Again, we'd rather not have it, but the reality is it's going to be there. So let's plan on it and know that when it comes, there is comfort that's coming alongside of it. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by the Lord. That's a two-edged statement. Boy, that's a two-edged statement. First of all, it says we have a job to do. We have a responsibility. When others are in pain, especially fellow believers, when they're in that difficult place, we have a responsibility. To the extent that we have been comforted, we have a responsibility to go to them and be ministers of comfort, right? The good part is we don't have to fix anything. That's one of the hardest things for us. I think that's one of the reasons why we are kind of reluctant to step up when we know that a brother or sister is in a bad way, they're having a hard time, and we, uh, if we go near them, we're going to be responsible to fix them. Not our job. Fixing the problem, fixing the person's not our job. Our job is to extend comfort. Comfort those who are in any affliction. right? And we don't have to come up with the comfort. If we are indwelt by the Spirit of God, Romans makes it pretty clear that's a definition of a Christian, the Holy Spirit of God living in us, our mere presence there will bring the comfort of the living God. I, you know, one thing about the COVID is done, I haven't had to spend much time like doing hospital visits and things, right? Because they won't let me in. But on those occasions, when I have gone into hospitals, I can certainly tell you that I very seldom have any idea what I'm going to say. And if I was dependent at all on knowing what I was going to say, knowing what I was going to do, knowing how I was going to minister to this person, I wouldn't go through the front door, right? But when I'm smart enough to remind myself that all I have to do is really be there and to be mentally there, and that the presence of being there as someone who cares is really all I'm called to do, it makes that job so very doable. And that's something we all are called to be and to do, right? Tribulation comes with the territory, that we know. When tribulation is met by comfort, God is manifested. When tribulation or affliction is met by comfort, God is manifested. Um, one of the things that you do when you're making hospital visits, you get to observe medical people at work a lot. And one of the things I have observed is when the nurse walks in the room, one of the things they always ask is, may I adjust your pillow for you? You ever notice that? Hadn't thought about that, really. I hadn't given much thought to that until I started to think about this, this dynamic. And so um, I asked an authoritative source, a nurse, I said, do they train you to say that? Is that, like, is that like just a coincidence? Or are you trained to say that? And the answer was yes, there's training in saying that. And I started to think about the dynamic of what, whoever came up with that was a genius. Think about the dynamic of what happens when a nurse enters a room and there's a person that's got an injury or they're ill or whatever, and they say, may I adjust your pillow for you? Are they fixing, the pro are they fixing whatever's got them in the hospital? Probably not, unless they're there because they had a bad pillow. Um, that's probably not why they're there. But when the question is asked, may I fix your pillow for you, there is a statement 
that I care about your comfort. I care about what you are experiencing. And to the measure that I can, I would like to make you as comfortable as possible. That's brilliant. Because it's an extension of what? Compassion. It's a demonstration of care. It is an act of comfort. Anybody here not qualified to adjust the pillow? See, we fall into the, the trap of thinking, well, you know, this business of comforting people that are having a hard time, that's the pastor's job. I am no more qualified to do it than you are. Zero extra qualifications. I am no more indwelt by the Spirit of God than anybody in this room, assuming we're all believers here. No more qualified to extend comfort than anybody else. All of us can say, here I am, how can I make you comfortable? By our mere presence, we do that, right? Want to make you as comfortable as I can. Big part of what people need. And the application of this, I think, is so obvious, no point to belabor it. For each one of us, number one, should not be surprised when the pressure comes. When we find ourselves in the olive press. Normal part of being on a fallen planet. It's essential to Christian growth. It allows God to extend his comfort to us, and because of that, we can extend comfort to others. And when those around us are suffering, I'm going to press the analogy a little bit here, probably regret it, but don't try to be the doctor, the one who fixes the problem, unless you're qualified. Don't try to be the problem solver, but be an agent, and we can all do this, by which God can, by his spirit, extend the comfort which only comes from Him. Father, I thank You that as we look to Your Word this morning, as we begin to just step in the beginning part of this letter from the Apostle Paul, Lord, it's reassuring to me to know that um, in whatever circumstance I may be in, Father, even if the answer to the problem is delayed, even if there's, even if there's no apparent answer to the problem, that your comfort is always available to us. Give us wisdom, Father, when we're in a difficult place. Give us wisdom to say, Lord, I just need your presence here right now. Strengthen my heart, Lord. Give us that wisdom. And Father, when those around us, Father, are suffering, I pray you would free us from this like American mindset that there always has to be a quick answer, and if I show up, I'm going to be responsible for that. No, Lord, free us from that to know that our job is to simply be the love and the compassion of Christ to those that are in a hard place. Let us be, Father, the ministers of your grace, mercy, and comfort to those around us in every situation, Father. Help us to that, and we pray, Father, for what a marvelous testimony of your person and power that will be. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.